Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, today we are celebrating our 400th episode. So many incredible doctors and experts, inspiring personal stories, and deep dives into emerging science. The milestone of 400 speaks to the longevity of our show. So in the spirit of longevity, Today's special episode will highlight our greatest nuggets of health span and lifespan advice we've heard on the pod. If you're new to the show, first, welcome. Second, when I say health span and lifespan, I'm referring to two different concepts. Lifespan being the actual accruing of years and health span being about allowing people to lead happier, healthier lives for as long as possible. There's a big difference. So here we go with our ultimate longevity show. And where should we start? Well, you know, we believe food is medicine here by Buddy Green, as does vascular biologist, Dr. William Lee. Diet is the medicine we take three times a day that can fortify these health defenses. So big picture first, generalities. It is absolutely true that all the research, all the science tells us that Whole plant-based foods, healthy oils, nuts and legumes tend to actually activate and seafoods also tend to activate our health defenses. And we've actually, the research I've done is to go deep to figure out exactly what we can find out, discover about what's in a blueberry, what's in uh, a macadamia nut, what's actually in a peach that actually can be beneficial. What's in an apple a day that keeps the doctor away? And we're beginning to actually get the answers to that. And so, and then food patterns are really important. We know that Mediterranean style dining, traditional, actually tends to be really healthy. And Asian style dietary patterns tend to be healthy. And actually indigenous styles of eating, if you could take a look at how folks in sub-Saharan Africa or even in Latin America, the, the, the simple indigenous diets all tend to be healthy because they're not piling on industrialized foods eat food not too much mostly plants and eat and do it in ways that are delicious to you because my philosophy is you um, love your food to love your health and what i find so joyous because i tell people i love food i did a gap year before i went to medical school and i went to the mediterranean and asia and i lived there and i cooked and i actually spent days wandering the marketplace, talking to people, understanding how the food connects to us. And I think that it's so easy in 2021, modern times, for us to basically view food as some miracle solution or some secret solution. We want the, we want the code to actually for health. But the, the reality is that we now have science in our side, but a lot of the old cultures have figured it out. And for me, food, the first, most important thing about food and health is that Food is incredibly intimate. Everyone has their own relationship, but it tells us about our childhood, what our kitchen smelled like when our moms were cooking. It tells us about our families. It tells us about our community. And very importantly, it tells us about our culture. In a place like the United States, everybody comes from someplace, and we all have an origin story where food plays a role. So by looking at our own cultures and the healthy foods within those origin stories, and then finding out what we love to eat and starting with those, that to me is a way to do sustainable eating that's healthy for your lifetime. 
And if you're a regular listener, you know how much I love longevity expert Dan Butner and all of his Blue Zones work. For the book, The Blue Zone Solution, I worked with Walter Weld at Harvard to do a meta-analysis, 155 dietary studies done in all Blue Zones over the last um, 80 years or so. And if you average it all together, people there are eating 90 to 100% whole plant-based food. It's mostly whole grains, greens, tubers like sweet potatoes, nuts, and beans. I agree, if you're eating a cup of beans a day, it's probably adding four years to your life expectancy. They do eat meat, hence plant slant. And most of my work is done with cities. You get hired by cities to lower the obesity rate. And if you come in with this hardline vegan mandate, people show you the door in a, a hurry. But if you come in, say, look, I know you're going to eat what you want to eat, but here's what the longest lived people are eating. And they're only eating meat about five times a month. So you may want to heed that example and uh, try to get more greens, beans, and nuts into your, into your meals. When it comes to diet and all the variations, trends, fads, and labels, I do think we tend to overcomplicate things, as does nutritionist Simon Hill. You have this great line in the book, which I loved as we try to navigate through uh, the very strong opinions that are almost, almost like navigating through rel religious beliefs in terms of all the diets out there. And you say, quote, it's suddenly clear that the best diet for us is one which 85% of its calories come from whole plant foods and any variation, whether it's keto, paleo, vegan, they can all deliver as long as, as long as it's plant predominant, end quote. Uh, like. I, I, I agree. It's like, whether it's 80, 85% or something up there, it's like, it's that, it's that simple yet. We seem to struggle with getting everyone on board with that. What do you think's going on there? Well, I think there is something about the fact that absolutes sell and taking extreme positions can tend to be a little sexier. And, and maybe it's also, uh, you know, virtue of the fact that sometimes oversimplifying a message uh, can be easier for, for someone to make sense of. But in reality, if you objectively look at the science and you sort of look into some of the nuance that exists in there, it does become very clear that each of those different diets can be done in a very health promoting way. And, and I think, you know, sometimes the focus on these dietary labels that we come up with, I understand where they can be helpful in certain circumstances, but I think in terms of the overall discussion about what a healthy diet is, sometimes they can be a distraction and really it can be more about what we disagree on with other people than what do we actually agree on. And let's focus on that because if everyone works towards improving their diet towards that, we're going to see huge changes in, in public health. And we're going to see people adding a good high quality years of life to their lifespan, which is what this is all about. Time restricted eating, circadian fasting, intermittent fasting, or intermittent eating, whatever you call it, it's been a game changer for me, as well as longevity expert and Harvard geneticist, Dr. David Sinclair. Adopting intermittent fasting in my life has been the single biggest change to how I feel and also how I look. And I, I've taken off, I've been getting younger for the past decade and the biggest impact has been this change in my eating uh, habits. And 
So what the science says, let's leave me aside for a minute. What the science says is that it's not just about what you eat, it's when you eat and the body should not always be fed. So what actually happens in the typical American Western is you eat, you wake up, you have some food for breakfast, your blood sugar will spike up to about 120, 130 mg per deciliter. You'll feel great, a lot of energy, sugar, and then the body produces insulin and sends the glucose way down. Now you're in a deficit. Now you go way down below like a roller coaster. Now you're, you're feeling like you need a snack. It's 11 o'clock. I've got to be hungry. I just had breakfast. So you start snacking, then you have lunch and you're up again. And then you, you shoot down again in deficit. Now it's the, the middle of the day and you've got uh, low glucose. You're tired. You've got the brain fog. I can't wait till dinner. And then you snack and you eat and you repeat this cycle every day. So I don't eat breakfast. I have a tiny bit of yogurt or olive oil, but that's nothing for fasting. And then I don't eat, if I'm on a good day, uh, I don't eat until seven o'clock at night. Now there are stressful days where I might grab a handful of nuts or something that's healthy and you can't always, you know, be perfect and, I, and I'm not, but most days I try my best to get through the day with hot teas and vitamin drinks and this kind of stuff, just fill up my stomach with liquids. Now, what that's done to me is that now my liver, after just three weeks of doing this, and now it's been many months, is, well, close to a year, is it's now putting out its own sugar. My liver is way smarter than my mouth and my brain. And I wake up in the morning and, you know, you can measure these things. I, I use Levels Health device, but there's a bunch. And I, I can see that my liver is smart. It builds up my blood glucose as I'm waking up, even before I actually wake up. And then it's leveled throughout the whole day, steady like that. A few little blips, or I have a nut or I exercise or something. And then at dinner, it'll go up, but not a lot. And then I sleep through the night. So that's optimal for longevity. We know that, that it's very healthy to have relatively low blood sugar levels and steady ones. So I'm, I'm hugely in favor of intermittent fasting. And I've had a, I've got my 20 year old body back as well. I never thought I could. I had love handles for most of my life and they're gone finally. Water, water, water. Neuroscientist Dr. Kristen Willemeyer tells us all we need to know about hydration. I am a big fan of making sure everybody is hydrated. In fact, one of the first things that I do when I teach people about taking care of their brain health is to make sure they are drinking their daily, as you drink your water. <laughs> You have to. I'm becoming self-conscious. I've got my, 30, my 32 ounce Yeti of Yay! water. I got to do it. That's so perfect. Yeah, I, I will tell you. So the Institute of Medicine has these standard recommendations that men should drink around 125 ounces of water per day. Women drink approximately 90 ounces of water. We had a formula that we used in the clinic where you could basically take your body weight, divide it by two. And that's how much water you should drink each day in ounces. So if you wow. weigh 200 pounds, you should drink 100 ounces of water. That's really a way to tailor it to you. And I will tell you, having taught hundreds, if not thousands of people in these groups about how to get brain fit and healthy and lose weight, the number one thing people don't do is drink enough water. So this is the first thing that we check off our list is have you drank your water today? And you can get 20% of that water from hydrating fruits and vegetables or green juices. So you can do that. 
You can do the lemon waters, the spa waters. So there's flexibility in how you get your fluids. But if you think about the fact that your brain is 75% water, and I tell, and I write in this book, it's not juice, coffee, tea, it's water. And it's just, it's going to help keep your blood pressure normalized. It's going to help flush toxins from your cells. It keeps your cells metabolically active and very healthy. It's going to keep your skin healthy. It just, when you have a one to 2% drop in hydration, you can start to have brain fog and symptoms associated with brain fog. So if I'm going to work with somebody and help them to have a better memory, the first thing I say is, how much are you drinking? How much water are you drinking? Are you doing juices? That's really one of the basics. Walking is my all-time favorite exercise and award-winning writer Annabelle Streets tells us about the benefits of specifically walking in nature. If you ask anyone, they instinctively would say, oh, I love to walk by the sea or I love, you know, so we know it, don't we? But now we sort of, now science tells us why, which, which is, I always find fascinating. Uh, and the other one, of course, is uh, woodland, forest, trees, greenery. So that also has been found to have, again, you know, quite remarkable effects on things like our blood pressure and our immunity. Uh, and these are because of the phytoncides, a, partic a particular sort of phytoncide called a terpene that are produced by trees as they protect themselves from, you know, germs and bacteria. So the trees that are, well, all, all trees produce phytoncides in varying quantities and they produce different types of phytoncides and different, different types of terpenes. And different types of terpenes have different types of effects on our body and brain. And this is really only just now being unpicked. So the, the Japanese have been studying it for about 20 years, but that is not, 20 years is not very long. We've been studying it over in the West for maybe five years. And water has been studied for, I don't know, maybe two or three years. It's really, we're just at the sort of very early stages of yeah, un understanding why our body changes and why our hormones change and why our brain changes when we're in the presence of woodland or you know, pine tree, conifers and pine trees or, or water or the sea. So I think over the next decade, we'll see a lot more fascinating research uh, explaining, explaining this. But the really simple thing is that if you think of us as um, nomads, I'm going back millennia here, we were originally nomadic. And what we needed above all in order to survive was water. So, and of course, originally we were walking out of Africa, out of very hot countries. So water was crucially important. So that message has somehow been encoded in our genes so that now when we come to water, uh, something happens in our head that says, hey, you're, you know, you're safe now because if you've got water, you've got food because there's nearly always the plant life and, and animal life and you've got liquid. So, so when we're near water, our stress levels, our cortisol just sort of, it just evaporates because suddenly it's like, hey, I can survive. And I, I love that. It's just so simple, isn't it? It's just such a simple thing. Water, survival, happy. Look, when I get older, I want to look and feel as good as Mark Sisson, the founder of Primal Kitchen. So I listen to anything Mark says about exercise. Well, the body is designed uh, to be mobile throughout the day and not 100% all the time throughout the day, but as we 
evolved, starting with Homo, whatever, two and a half million years ago, we as upright mobile creatures, walking was the main form of not just locomotion, but walking and standing. Yes, there was some squatting and sitting and lying down, but most of the time we were putting this body, this bilaterally symmetrical body that's built more like a segue than anything else. Like how is it that we don't fall over that we're standing on two feet? It blows my mind that we have this, that we are basically a segue. You, um, you mind me a, a joke. So for I'm six foot seven. You've met me. My listeners know that. And, and I have a size 15 shoe. And every and I remember I'd go into a shoe store and they'd be like, holy cow, a size 15. I'd be like, any smaller, I'd tip over guys. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, mobility. Look, two things really define quality of life as we get older. Mobility and access to memory and, and thought. So we know a lot about the Alzheimer's part of that equation. You don't want to go down that route. You want to be present. You want to be communicative with people around you in your 80s and 90s. You want to be sharp and responsive, but also you want to be mobile. You don't want to be bedridden or in a wheelchair or, or consigned to a couch all day long. You want to be mobile. And the way to mobility doesn't mean you have to go out and ju- run marathons. It just means you got to move your body through space. And walking is the easiest way to prompt this genetic recipe that we all have into lubricating the joints and building up the connective tissue and and building up bone density and maintaining a range of motion. So walking is just the easiest and at the end of the day, probably the most effective thing we can do of all the choices we can make in, in, in the form of exercise. So just freaking walk is like, if you could just maintain that mantra and if we sort of invoke it a lot in this book, Two Meals a Day, because as you're getting to the point where you're skipping breakfast or you're skipping at least one meal and you think that you're hungry, you're not really hungry. This is your brain telling you it's time to eat because I always used to eat at this time. One of the one of the strategies is just go for a walk, to go for a 10 or 15 minute walk and get the get literally get the juices flowing, get the blood flowing, start to stimulate uh, the production of these of t- taking fat out of storage and combusting it as fuel to keep you moving and to generate energy throughout your body. Yeah, walking is the second most overlooked aspect of health behind behind sleep probably but if you get your sleep right and you get your walking right again you're so close to being where you need to be maintaining one's muscle mass is so critical to longevity and not talked about enough biochemist rob wolf breaks it down supporting muscle mass and preventing sarcopenia the age-related muscle mass process it does all of this stuff. And it's kind of a known, it's kind of a guarantee. But when we flip this around, all of us have a risk profile of some probability of developing cancer or neurodegenerative disease or type 2 diabetes or what have you. But it's not a guarantee for any of us. But yet people are doing these, in my opinion, really extraordinary interventions, super low protein intake, fasting for a week at a time and doing it at a a rather frequent clip, all in the hopes that they're going to mitigate some disease potential while they are absolutely increasing the likelihood of worsening age-related sarcopenia if they take this stuff too far. So there's this guarantee of losing muscle mass, losing the ability for maximum power production as we age, That begins in our 30s. If you strength train and eat well, you can, instead of the curve being like this, the curve can be more, we're flattening the curve in the other direction. We know we can do that. And we know that can benefit health span and lifespan. And it's a guaranteed 
risk mitigator. Whereas some of these really extraordinary interventions, it's a complete guess. And so I, I guess, it, you know, as an example, there are a lot of people that they will jump on forums or social media and they're like, hey, I do a 48 hour fast once a month. I'm thinking about jumping up to a 72 hour fast. Should I do it or not? And my question would be, are you doing, how much strength training are you doing? And the question should be, can you fit in an additional day per week of strength training versus should you fit in an an additional day per week of strength training, in my opinion, is going to benefit us far more than an additional day of fasting per month, uh, you know, in the the big total thing, uh, you know, story. It's not very sexy. Uh, It's not where the Silicon Valley execs are putting all their time and money and effort and all the rest of that stuff. But I I think that's where the real return on investment lies with the kind of longevity health span story. And whatever exercise you subscribe to, Mark Sisson reminds us that it must be fun. It's a marathoner in the 70s. I was a triathlete, Ironman triathlete in the 80s. So I did all the miles. I put in all the miles. I probably, I definitely damaged my heart. I'm going to say I ruined it, but I damaged my heart with all the hard training I did for 30 years. I would take some of that back. I, you know, I ate far too many carbs. And as a result of the notion that a runner, anybody who's doing that amount of training can burn anything. The furnace will burn anything, right? I had a highly inflammatory diet. So I had arthritis and tendonitis and I had all these injuries that I should not have had, which I thought at the time were a result of overtraining, but it turns out were just the result of overtraining in conjunction with a highly inflammatory diet. Now you say, well, would you take that back? Would you do it over again? Well, probably not because the, the injuries forced me to retire and to reflect back on what I'd done wrong and maybe how I could shift in for myself in the future, maybe how I could, how I could pre- help somebody else not make the same mistakes that I made. And so the mistakes that I made ultimately got me to where I am today. And I've got some injuries that I've got. I, I tore my uh, lat when I was 35 years old on the still rings, doing inappropriately doing gymnastics because I thought I could at 35, I thought I could do what I was, what I had done when I was 17 or 18. I tore my patellar tendon playing ultimate frisbee because I was going up against a 20-something and and did a Superman dive to try and catch a, a frisbee, and I was 58 years old or whatever when that happened. So, I mean, so, I don't really have like a one single thing. I mean, I, I hang out with young people as you might imagine, and that's one of the things I learned early on was that you, I, I like energy and I like to hang out with young, energetic people. So. As you get older, and particularly me, most of the people my age are like, Jesus, I don't want to hang around with them. They're like, they're cantankerous and they're pissed off and they're in pain all the time and they're not, and they're out of shape and they look like shit. And they, so I, I hang around young people. But by the same token, I was thinking about this the other day. I, I still play ultimate frisbee, right? And, and I'm going to be 68 in July. And I'm on a pitch, a frisbee pitch in a football field under the lights, playing with some of the best frisbee players on the East Coast. These are ex national team players from Venezuela and Argentina, and they're 20 and 30 something. And I'm sprinting down the field, trying to defend a, a long throw or trying to get open to catch one myself. And there's a point at which you go, all right, it's become a novelty. Now I'm like, now I'm like, it's like a parlor trick that I show up every week. Like when, like what day does it become inappropriate for me to show up and go, okay, I'm sort of, I'm finished with that. But it was the mindset that got me to this point in the first place. It kept me going instead of retiring from say ultimate at, at 50 years old or 55 years old. Um, so I would say just staying as active as I can. My, my biggest thing right now is 
my forms of activity are largely centered around play. So today I went for a, a stand-up paddle, hour and 15-minute stand-up paddle. And I paddled pretty hard the whole way. But it was on a beautiful like lagoon and up some inland waterways in, in Miami. I saw three manatee today, which is kind of a, a, a spectacle in and of itself. Got a great workout, got some vitamin D, came back, felt like I'd done something. Paddling for me doesn't get my heart rate up too high, and yet it's all full body exercise. Um, I go fat biking on the beach, and my wife, who's very fit, but she can't keep up with me on the fat bike, so she motorized fat bike, a pedal assist kind of motor. And we ride in the deep sand, like five miles up the beach and five miles back. And it, it's an amazing workout. It's a lot of fun. It's a big challenge. So I, and I play ultimate, as I say, and I have an electric foil uh, board that's sort of akin to snowboarding on the water. And I try to have fun now. That's the main thing for anything that I do that's activity. I don't like the drudgery of calling it a workout anymore. It, for me, it's like, I'm going to go play. And what game am I going to play today? Or what, how am I going to have fun today with my movement patterns? Sleep. Need I say more? Behavioral sleep doctor Shelby Harris helps us with one of the biggest sleep issues we face, waking up in the middle of the night. So what happens when we do wake up in the middle of the night? Like what should we do? What should we not do if we want to get back to sleep? Yeah. The, the number one thing that everyone tends to do is they, it's like, you know, if they look at the clock, then they take their phone and they just lay there on their phone and just kind of scroll through social media or whatever, just trying to fall asleep. Or the other thing that a lot of people will do is they'll lie there and they'll just stay as still as possible trying to get themselves back to sleep. So, and then there are other people, you know, some people will take medication in the middle of the night. There's a lot of different options. Some people have alcohol, whatever they can do to go back to sleep. What I try to get people to do is we call it stimulus control. So it's so frustrating and hard to do, but it really does pay off if you do it in the long run. Is when you wake up, try not to look at the clock. I really argue that the clock is just going to make it worse for many people. So when you wake up, just if you haven't fallen back asleep in about 20 or 30 minutes, just kind of guesstimate. Don't get too obsessive about it. But if you start getting frustrated or your brain's getting active and you know you're not falling back asleep, get up, go sit somewhere else. Go do something quiet, calm, and relaxing without screens and do it in dim light. So don't sit in the dark then, like staring, hoping that you'll fall asleep because that's all going to make it worse. So it's just really meant to pass the time. And the whole idea behind that is that the more time you spend in the middle of the night or even at the beginning of the night or early morning, laying there in bed, tossing and turning, trying to force sleep, the more the bed becomes about that than actually sleep. And this is, this is what we hear all the time. A lot of people talk about getting out of bed if you can't sleep. But the misnomer with it that a lot of people will say is, well, when I get out of bed, I read and it didn't make me sleepy, so it doesn't work. But that's not the point of that rule. The point of the rule is to get out of bed so that you're not teaching yourself that the bed is a place to toss and turn. Sleep will come when it comes. So to go on the couch and read is great, but don't try to force the sleepiness to happen. It will happen when it happens. You're just using it as a placeholder. And then get back in bed only when you're sleepy again. And that's it. And you might have to be in and out a little bit, but that treatment technique has been around since the early 70s and has so much data behind it. It's just really hard for a lot of people to be consistent with. Got it. And what about waking up? Waking up early in the morning is similar. So I, I am a fan of, we, we were talking about consistency. So if you can set, it's hard, especially when you're talking about like little ones, if you have kids that get up at different times, but it's ideal if you can set a timer. So you have an alarm that goes off. And if your alarm hasn't gone off yet, it's still considered middle of the night. 
So I'd get up, go sit somewhere else, do the same sort of thing. Go wait until you're quiet again, get or sleepy again, then get back in bed. And that's another thing where I would say to people, you know, try not to start your day. So if you wake up two hours earlier than you normally want to, a lot of people will just say, oh, you know, whatever, forget it. I've already just, I've slept. I can't sleep anymore. I'm going to go have my coffee. I'm going to go on the computer and start working or whatever. That just trains you with the light exposure, the food exposure, getting up to actually have an earlier bedtime. So just treat it like it's the middle of the night until that alarm gets off, goes off, and then go back into bed. And if you wake up and you hear the alarm in the other room, you're done. Don't go to sleep until the next night. And ideally, we should try to wake up the same time every day, no matter what. The, the nighttime starts with the morning. So if you get up at around the same time every day using an alarm, it helps to f make you essentially hungry enough that when bedtime comes, you've stayed, you've got enough hunger for sleep so that you fall asleep faster and stay asleep more. The biggest problem that people with insomnia get stuck with a lot of times if they have the ability to do it is they kind of start to like compensate for sleep. So they'll sleep in a little bit in the morning, a little later, or go to bed a little earlier. If you really get strict with that wake time and you get light exposure right at that set wake time, it really does help with falling asleep at night. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know how much I love supplements and functional medicine doctor Kara Fitzgerald tells us about the power of organic greens, omega-3s, and vitamin D. As I mentioned, you know, for me, I supplement, uh, I take lots of supplements. We have our own supplement line. I love supplements and they've yes, helped me tremendously with, with my homocysteine. And so you know, without going on the rabbit hole, I do think they're personalized and I know you agree, but you also, we, we agree on this. You go in the book, you say, you know, look, there are certain supplements that it's safe to say that pretty much everyone can benefit from. I think any good quality organic greens powder is good. It's just an additional, you know, bump. Yet all of us are deficient in omega-3. So we want people eating adequate amounts of omega-3 foods, be them vegetarian sources like flax and chia or, you know, nice fatty, good quality fatty fish. But even still, myself included, as, as much salmon as I eat in a given week, I still need more and as much chia as I eat, I still need more. So I always take an omega-3, a good high potency omega-3. Vitamin D. Yeah, we're all deficient. It's, it's, it's actually crazy. <laughs> and I don't know why it's, it seems almost, well, certainly in my patient population and myself, it's pretty hard for me to keep my D up. I mean, I'm currently taking 10,000 IU, which is more than I ever thought that I would need. And my last measurement was 50. So I think vitamin D is decent. What else did I cover? We do, we actually did a broad sweep in supplements. If you're vegetarian or vegan and you need it, if you're, you know, you want to be taking some iron, you know, vitamin C is decent. What else? Zinc. Now, I personally think omega-3s are absolutely essential for anyone who takes their cognitive and cardiovascular health seriously, which our very own VP of Scientific Affairs here at MindBuddyGreen, Dr. Ashley, wholeheartedly agrees with. Fish oil is like 360 degree support for your heart. And I, I made a note to myself because I didn't want to mess up the language. So let me just tell folks, when the FDA issues a claim that is for, you know, relevant to a supplement and allows you to mention a disease, it's a big deal. So the FDA in 2019, they approved a new claim for EPA and DHA and coronary heart disease. 
and as it relates to blood pressure. And it goes like this. Consuming EPA and DHA combined may reduce the risk of coronary heart disease by lowering blood pressure. They then qualify that statement with a caveat. It's concluded the evidence is inconsistent and conclusive. One serving of Omega-3 Potency Plus, that's the name of My Buddy Green's product, provides 1.5 grams of EPA and DHA. The FDA requires you, if you're going to use that claim, to say how many milligrams or grams of EPA plus DHA your product delivers. Why? Because that they say that claim is only relevant for products who include a minimum of at least 800 milligrams of EPA plus DHA per serving, which actually a lot of fish oil products out there will only, if you count up the EPA and DHA, only deliver, you know, 500, sometimes less, 750. I mean, 800 is their cutoff. We're at 1500. So in terms of 360 heart health, though, to back it up, there's the reason why FDA has issued something like that. There are hundreds of studies now collectively for the ability of omega-3s, EPA and DHA at clinically relevant doses to lower blood pressure. So maintain and help you achieve a healthy blood pressure, massive cardiometabolic health implications, by the way, to help you achieve a healthy level of lipids with uh, triglyceride levels kind of right there at the top. And then vascular health overall. So we're talking about your blood vessels, your vasculature, the things that impact, you know, processes like from atherosclerosis to your heart beating to, you know, blood and oxygen and nutrients and everything getting from your heart to all the vessels and all the organs in your body. So I, those two, to your point, brain and heart are like at the top for omegas. But I really, I will say a, a pet peeve is I don't like to silo nutrients. Like I don't like to say vitamin D is for bone. Vitamin C is for immune. Just like I don't like to say EPA is for heart and DHA is for brain. Like no, EPA and DHA are, you know, pleiotropic, multitasking, freaking awesome fats. And they're both acting um, and are both important, you know, to have together. What can I say about methylation? Well, I feel like understanding methylation saved my life. And that is not an understatement. So listen to episode 391 with functional medicine doctor Frank Lippman to hear about my own personal methylation story. But as Dr. Frank points out, methylation is much bigger than me and a huge issue for many people. You know, when you talk about all these processes, you know, when you're talking about stress on the body, you're talking about you're, you're hitting on longevity, you know, specifically oxidative stress. And suffice to say, methylating properly has a ripple effect to all of these things. So it's not just like about this number. Exactly. It's in the same way that our, our friend, Dr. David Perlmutter talks about uric acid exactly. as like one, one marker, but it has a ripple effect with all these other things. Homocysteine similar. Exactly. Homocysteine is just one important biomarker that's basically saying you're not methylating properly. And if you're not methylating properly, it's going to mean you're going to be more prone to inflammation. You're not going to detox properly. You're going to have, there's an absolute ripple effect to almost every system in the body. In fact, a lot of people I see who aren't methylating properly actually present with moodiness or depression 
or, or, or neurological symptoms, but especially anxiety and depression. So in the old days, we used to think anxiety and depression were emotional issues or something happened in the past. But what we're finding now, the more we do genetic testing and we see people's methylation processes are off, that affects, you know, whether they're going to be anxious or depressed. So it's very interesting. It's not, you know, what methylation or inflammation is what we call an upstream problem, which is causing all sorts of downstream problems on all organ systems, including emotional health. Methylation is about transferring these atoms, this relay race from, you know, this transferring this baton from biochemical process to biochemical process. Oxidative stress is really this balance of creating too many free radicals that can then go on to cause inflammation and all sorts of problems and having enough antioxidants to balance it. So it's this balancing act between too, too many oxidants or, or, or chemicals that are going to create inflammation and problems and having enough to balance the antioxidants to balance that, which is very intertwined with inflammation and methylation. And what about detoxification? And I think it's also important to note, you know, the way you and I talk about detoxification, I think detox can get a bad rap. I think there are many people out there who think detox is what I do after a, you know, weekend of partying with my friends right. in Vegas and that equal, you know, right. but, but, but we don't, you and I don't think about detoxification that way. So let's do a little bit of a primer on detoxification. Right. So we all have de natural detoxification systems in our body. For instance, the liver has a system where, where you, let's say we're exposed to chemicals from the outside or even chemicals from the inside. When your gut microbiome is off, creates metabolites, then that goes to the liver and the liver has to process them. So the liver is this processing detoxification organ that is actually breaking down these chemicals that you're exposed to ingesting or even creating in your gut. It's breaking them down into a different type of chemical that is making it more easily available to get your body can get rid of it. So it's the two mechanisms in the, you know, the, what they call phase one and phase two mechanisms in the liver. One sort of alters that chemical and the second phase helps you get rid of the chemical. So Detoxification is happening all the time in your body. We're just unaware of it. We think of detoxification just, you know, if you've been, as you say, you know, you do a detox or um, you, you need to detox from alcohol, whatever it is. But yeah, it's much more complicated than that. And once again, you need methylation in the detox. That's a key mechanism in the detoxification process. Is one way to think about it, essentially, if you think about our, our bodily functions as it relates to longevity is like there's a wheel and methylation's in the wheel, detoxification's in the wheel, oxidative stress is in the wheel, and all these things need to be working. Absolutely. We breathe more than 20,000 times a day, and it just might be the most powerful tool in our longevity toolkit. Breathing expert Patrick McEwen tells us how we can start to realize the power of our breath. If you are healthy and you're not pregnant and you've got no serious medical conditions, do some breath holds. And this could be, for example, you take a normal breath in and out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold. 
And then you start walking with the breath hold, go into a jog, you go into a fast jog with the breath hold. And keep going until the air hunger is quite strong. And then to let go, but to get your breathing under control. And what that can do as well is it's increasing carbon dioxide in the blood. And it can help to reduce your sensitivity to the gas carbon dioxide. So that's something we use a lot with athletes. But it does more than that. It will open up the nose. It will open up the lungs. It will increase blood flow to the brain. And it will also cause the spleen to contract. And the spleen is our blood bank. It contains about 8% of our red blood cells. So when you do a long breath hold, the spleen will release red blood cells into circulation. And this is why we have athletes do it before they go out into a game, because it takes about 10 to 60 minutes for the spleen to reabsorb that blood back. So we have a second test for athletes, and that's called the maximum breathlessness test. And that's when they take a normal breath in and out through the nose, pinch the nose and hold. And we count how many paces can they hold their breath for to a maximum. And you're looking that they can achieve a minimum of 60 paces and maximum will be 80 to 100 paces. Breathing is also so darn simple when it comes to optimizing. Literally shut your mouth and breathe through your nose. Performance expert Brian McKenzie breaks it down. The nasal passages present the greatest opportunity for, fil for filtering bacteria and virus in the air. The, the mouth has a couple, the tonsils being part of that system, but there's a large amount of air when we breathe through the mouth that passes right through and goes into the lungs. This is why mouth breathing, if you, if you sleep at night and you're, you know, catching your mouth open, your mouth is dry. Like that's dry air. Your lungs actually pr prefer high, humid, humidified air, right? So starting at the beginning, we have as many hair follicles inside of our nose as we do on our head. Yeah. So that presents a very unique understanding of something that why would we have that many hair there? That much hair there, right? Well, that is a particle graph on every single hair that's in that nose. There is a mucus coating. And mucus is, is kind of like the honey badger of our, like our immune system. It's like, it's like the most offensive thing. And although it can be gross to a lot of people, the fa fact is, is it's the most offensive thing there is. And it, it instantaneously either collects and allows you to blow your nose, pick your nose or get things out. Right. Or, and it also, if there are if there are bacteria or viruses that it instantaneously launches a defense of many different th1 th2 and beta cells right like that are that are these long term memory cells that 10 years from now 20 years from now they know what that was that came in because it came in and it's why you don't get the same virus or the same bug the same time again right so all of these things play an integral role through the mucus, right? And so that mucus also can be, you, you would be very shocked as to how much mucus you actually swallow in a day. Like people would be just grossed out, but the fact is it is a lot and it's an important process because that stomach and the stomach acid 
instantaneously kills things, right? So things either need to go out or they need to be swallowed. They can't be inhaled into the lungs because there's ver- there's not a whole lot of safe things in there. And so that's why it's like in a time of like, you know, COVID and what's going on right now, respiratory health is so important. And the fact, and, and the thing is, is that the, the COVID virus, the crown of it, the proteins hook on to these, to, to, to cells with inside the membranes that line all of this stuff, right? inside the nose, inside the airways, inside the epithelial walls, all of these things. And once that gets in there, if there's not a host of good mucus in there, you're, you're more prone to actually probably getting this thing. This is why a lot of people who are mouth breathers tend to get sinusitis, rhinitis. Um, they get, they're, they're, they're constantly have immune system problems, meaning people who get sick or get colds quite frequently. You know what I mean? These are all byproducts of things like that, right? And that that's one of the biggest differences that people will experience with nasal breathing into their life is that their immune system completely changes, even from an allergy standpoint. The amount of people that come back to me go, telling me about how they don't experience allergies the way they used to or at all is shocking. Look, I don't like cold showers or cold plunges or cold anything, but there are many longevity benefits, according to Dr. David Sinclair. I used to do cold plunges. I used to do cycles of four degrees Celsius, which will, you know, almost shivering cold water up to my neck, stay in there for as long as I could bear, which was about five minutes, jump out, go in a sauna for 20 minutes, feels great. And then repeat that a few times. And I, I never felt better after that, you know, so it may not make you live longer, but you certainly feel invigorated, but the science is really getting stronger on that. I, w- I would say that five years ago, we didn't know, but now we do know that sauna protects you against heart disease. If you do it regularly, I would say at least do it once a week and cold plunges are increasingly thought to be helpful for a reason that's interesting. What it does is it activates the production of brown fat, which exists mostly in your back. And brown fat is super healthy. It puts out signals that increase your metabolism. And also, again, this adversity signal that your body will defend itself better. And I think we're just going to learn more and more that keeping your body or getting your body out of the comfort zone in temperature wise and oxygen wise and nutrition wise is the trick. So in the spirit of democratization, what does that practice look like in the shower? Can we hack it in the shower with temperature? Well, of course you can. Uh, just don't turn on the hot water and get under there for a few minutes. But for some reason, I can't do that myself. But if you can, I think it'd be great. I instead like to turn it up to almost scalding hot, hope that's mimicking a sauna. But yeah, it, all of that, I, I totally would do that if, if I could manage it. But I, I just love warm showers in the morning, so it's not for me. Another benefit of cold exposure is that it burns brown fat, according to Annabelle Streets. There's been quite a lot of quite a lot of research about this recently, yeah, thanks to Wim Hof and his, and his ice bath. So I think we all, or many of us now know about brown fat, but we have these pockets of brown fat. Well, as babies, we're born with a nice layer of brown fat, which is designed to keep us warm in case, you know, in case a mother decided to run off and leave newborn baby on a, you know, out under a tree. So we're born with this nice layer of brown fat, which is, um, you know, 
fantastically healthy. And I'll explain why in a minute. As we get older, we shed our brown fat, but we do keep little pockets of it. So we tend to keep it around the tops of our shoulders and around our collarbones. Those are classic places to keep a bit of brown fat. Now, brown fat sounds, it sounds horrible, doesn't it? It's a particularly unpleasant word, really. But brown fat is brilliant. And what scientists have discovered is that brown fat eats up the bad white fat. So white fat is the fat that clogs our arteries, gives us harsh attacks and heart disease. But brown fat just eats it up. So, so brown fat is basically, it's basically lots and lots of uh, mitochondria. So it produces energy. And it, uh, one of the ways it produces energy is by eating up the white fat. So we all need brown fat. Now, brown fat is triggered by, amongst other things, cold. So if you have, a lot of people now are into their cold showers or, or their, their ice baths. They do exactly the same thing. But if you're out walking on a cold day, um, just expose a little bit of your, you know, around your collarbones, around your neck for a little, for a short time to some, which is a very quick way of getting a bit of uh, brown fat sort of built in your, inside your body. But the other way uh, of building brown fat is to take a hot coffee with you. So go for a walk, unwrap your scarf out in the cold and have your hot coffee. And it's a, what a wonderful way to, you know, do something that's very good for your body. I am a huge believer in the power of our minds, the power of our belief systems. And healthy aging expert, Dr. Becca Levy, has some fascinating research on the power of positivity. Another important message of the book, which resonated with me, is having a belief system that's based in positive beliefs rather than negative beliefs. And you go as far as you reference a study on longevity where those with positive beliefs live seven and a half years longer than those with negative beliefs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So after, after I got back from Japan, I was really interested in how to actually show with science, whether that's actually the case that these age beliefs that exist in the culture can actually impact our lifespan or longevity. And I wasn't sure how to study it at first. I was searching for all different kinds of methods. And because you can't really randomly assign people and then look to see right away whether they die or not, but you really have to follow people over a long period of time to, to see the impact of on lifespan. So fortunately, I found a data set in, from Oxford, Ohio, and a sociologist named Robert Ashley had asked everybody in the town who was 50 and older to talk about a number of ideas, but one of them happened to be, how do you think about aging? And so he actually measured their age beliefs in the 1970s. And then I came along and found this data set and said, okay, if only I could find a way to look at their lifespan. And I searched around to try to see how to do that. And then I came across a data set called the National De Death Index, which keeps track of how when everybody dies in the country, I didn't know before that that such a thing existed. But then when I found out about that, I was able to match the beliefs that were expressed in this town of Oxford, Ohio, to how long they lived. And exactly what you said, we found that those who had taken in more positive age beliefs had a median survival that was seven and a half years longer than those who started the study and had taken more negative age beliefs. So it was, yeah, quite a big difference between the groups. It's amazing. I'm curious. Is there a real world example you could revive from that study of what up, what would constitute a positive belief versus a negative belief? Yeah. So in different studies, I measure age beliefs in different ways. So one thing that I often do in studies is I just ask people, when you think an older person, what are the first five words or phrases that come to mind? And so people generate 
images. And that's, that's actually something I do with my own students. I, I teach um, masters of public health students and we start the semester by just exploring our own beliefs. And so that, that is one way. And, and, but another way is a number of studies have surveys that ask people about their age beliefs. So for example, in the longevity study, the, the way that they assessed it was a questionnaire that included a number of items such as older people. So they would say whether they agree or disagree that older people contribute to society. So if somebody who said yes, they would be marked as having a slightly higher belief, positive, more positive belief about aging. If somebody says, no, they don't contribute to society at all, they would be marked as having a lower or more negative belief about aging. Sergey Young, a longevity expert who wants to live to age 200, is all in on mindset. I call it peace of mind. And it's a combination of sleep, uh, meditation, and socialization and uh, sense of purpose. In book, I call it Think and Grow Young. I'm a huge fan of, and of a psychological approach to aging. So if you think you're younger, your body actually works differently. So like my mantra, I'm going to live 200 years in a 25 years old body and mind. And this is what I repeat every morning and every evening. And when I've done this change on the mindset level, my life has changed completely. So imagine I'm waking up every morning and three fourths of my life is ahead of me. This is amazing. Okay. Again, this is a little trick. I mean, it's, it might not work for everyone, but if you just do this experiment for what, probably two weeks. And so you'll discover a lot of changes in your behavior, your level of energy, even uh, in the way your body works. Real, meaningful IRL connection is absolutely critical, according to science journalist Marta Zaraska. I came across was very eye-opening. In this particular study, the scientist scientists put together basically all the numbers. So they showed that, for example, the exercise can lower your mortality risk by about 20 to 30%. And for the, for a very good diet, it's more or less the same, 20 to 30%. Whereas something called social integration. So having loving romantic partner, having friends, being connected to your community, all this taken together can lower your mortality risk by about 45%, which is astounding. So it's here you have 45 and there was 20 to 30. So even though obviously diet and exercise are important, I was missing a huge chunk of what makes us live long and healthy. I was focusing so much on, on, you know, on this organic kale that I was completely forgetting something else. And. Also, when I researched growing young, I discovered that actually things like exactly organic heritage and super miraculous berries and stuff like that actually doesn't matter almost at all because healthy diet is much simpler than that. It's just eat your veggies, don't eat fast food, don't eat sugar. It's kind of simple. And if you think about it that way, it really frees a lot of time to concentrate on those things that I was missing. So kindness, optimism, relationships, things like that. Loneliness is a, it's a huge health issue and it's on the other hand, connecting with others can really boost the immune system. For example, happy married people have a better vaccine response, meaning that they, if they get vaccinated, 
against flu, they are much more likely to have a better immune response to it than people who are lonely. The same, for example, in general, loneliness makes us more prone to viruses. There was this one fascinating study I described in Growing Young in which the, the scientists invited 300 people into their lab and infected them basically with cold viruses, obviously, by their permission. The, the volunteers were paid a lot for that. Uh, so they infected them with viruses and afterwards they thought that the people who are claiming to be the most lonely were the most likely to come down with the virus which shows you that loneliness is really bad when you are trying to avoid viruses. Also things like kindness, volunteering actually can protect, can boost your antiviral response. And come on, look, we're mind, body, green. One word, not three. It is all connected. So our senior sustainability editor, Emma Lowy, of course, talks about the power of nature. There's a, a body of, of sort of larger scale research that essentially pairs residential address data, so information about where people live, and then satellite imagery to show how green or not green their surrounding neighborhood is. And that research has found that, you know, people who live in areas that have more access to greenery tend to report they've lower incidence of cardiovascular disease. They tend to be less likely to get diabetes. As I mentioned before, they tend to be more active. And then there's also just a, just a decreased mortality risk. Like people, they tend to live longer if you live close to green space. So, you know, city dwellers might hear that and think like, well, shoot, I'm, you know, I don't have any of that. I'm screwed. But, you know, in talking to the people who have done that research, they really hammer home the idea that it's not necessarily access to a grand expansive park that seems to have the you know the highest associations it's it's really the green space that's right outside of your front door and street trees totally count you know they 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 can get picked up in that satellite imagery so i think it's more just a matter of ensuring that our cities do have some you know access to green everywhere and really spreading that versus just focusing in on like one park is is really essential and i think it's a, a real you know public health it's a boon to public health my personal spiritual practice has gotten me through so much in life and i absolutely love clinical psychologist dr lisa miller's work on the power of spirituality she is one of the most brilliant scientific minds on this very subject. So we had been searching for a very long time up at Columbia University Medical School for protective factors against one of the most debilitating forms of illness, actually, in the whole world, which is clinical depression. Believe it or not, depression is something like the third or fourth leading cause of other illnesses, early death, and obviously even suicidality in the world. Depression is really takes from us. So we had looked at childhood parenting. We had looked at the conditions, you know, the socioeconomic conditions. We had looked at a broad host of the usual factors that people look at when they try to understand how can we gird people against the deep suffering in depression. And of all of the factors using the lens of epidemiology, looking, if you will, out the airplane window from the 10,000 foot view on large groups of people, it turned out that far and away, the most profoundly protective factor against depression is personal spiritual life. 
And that's true whether or not someone is religious. They could be spiritual and religious or spiritual and not religious. And it's true no matter what denomination they may be, Catholic, Hindu, Jewish, Muslim, whatever the case, personal spirituality was 80% protective against the lifetime course of major depression. So given this extraordinarily profound change in our lives associated with spirituality and its extraordinary girding against really this form of suffering that can dog people for years, we thought, well, shouldn't there be some sort of, if you will, neurodocking station or region or circuit in the brain that's associated both with spirituality and its benefits against depression? So we set to work. And we drew as a team up at Columbia Presbyterian on all of the work that had been done to date, both on depression and the tiny little bit that had been done on spirituality and searching for neurocorrelates, this neurodocking station, if you will. A team just a few years before us had identified broad and pervasive regions of cortical thinning. The cortex is processing power and they had found not strength through thickness, but thinning in people with recurrent depression, specifically in regions of perception, reflection, and orientation. So we thought, well, that's not a bad place to start. Let's look there. And similarly, another team in science you like if different teams find things because you're sure it's not just the sway of one lab. Another team in another city had identified uh, regions with some overlap in another study of perception and reflection that were not, they hadn't looked at cortical thickening or, or anything, but that seemed to be active in people with a strong spiritual life. So we put it all together. We looked through the MRI at people who had suffered time and time again with depression and those people who had been at risk based on parent genetics, been at risk based on, if you will, the rain cloud of depression over their head. So they lived with people who were depressed. They had tough situations in lives. And then we looked at the very same group of people who, despite all these risks and despite areas in their lives where things were not going well at all, seemed somehow to recover with a strong personal spiritual life from setbacks, from disappointments, and did not have the lifetime course of major depression. And when we looked at these two groups together in the scanner, what we saw was that in people who had decided day in and day out by choice to live with, if you will, a spiritual lead foot, they prayed, they meditated. When life took away something, they said, well, there's a path for me. I know God walks with me. I know that I am supported. Life itself is holding. People who issued by choice in their heart a spiritual response to suffering showed entirely different brains. Indeed, they showed not thinning, but thickening across the regions of perception and reflection, the parietal, precuneus, and occipital. They, for having built the muscle, if you will, built cortical thickness across these regions, were neuroprotected against what otherwise might have been viewed as a fait accompli, the genetic and environmental loading for a life of suffering, recurrent major depression. Stress happens, upsetting text messages happen, 
and we all know how managing stress plays a significant role in our health span. So neuroscientist Dr. Amishi Jha walks us through what to do. Let's say you get a upsetting text message. What's a real world example of how a mindfulness-based approach would, would help you manage your attention, your level of anxiety, your mood and so forth after receiving this text message that is quite upsetting? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting example because it's such an acute, potent. <laughs> and it happens all the time. Event, and it happens a lot to all of us. So I guess the first question is like, when is this happening? Let's say it's happening while you're trying to get something done. So let's say you have a deadline and you get this upsetting message and the upsetting message has nothing to do. It's a personal thing. The deadline is for some work-related thing. And now you're in this real conflict situation where you know you need to devote your mind to the task at hand get meeting that deadline, getting the work done, but you have this pull on your attention toward that negative, probably self-related content. Somebody's either criticizing you or there's a problem or somebody that you hear about is in jeopardy. Troubling stuff is happening. You know, the first thing to, to do is to, and by the way, mindfulness is not a quick fix. And all of these, all the things I'm about to say next come through cultivating sort of training for your mind that allows you to do this and pay attention differently. So, you know, if this happens and you don't succeed at doing it in the mindful way, it's not a failure. It's just part of the learning process. But one thing to do that maybe even counterintuitive if you take a mindfulness-based approach is to first acknowledge and allow the emotional reaction that you had to receiving the text message. So you did get pulled away from the work that you were doing, probably at your computer, by your phone, let's say that the text message appeared on. So your attention was pulled away and now you've received this content and the mood you have in that moment is very stressed out or negative in some way. Oftentimes what we, the typical response may be, push it away, suppress it, ignore it, stomp it down so you can get back to work. Like I'm not letting that thing interfere, I'm gonna get over it and get back to it. And you think you're being successful because you're like, I pushed it out of my mind, here I go. For anybody that's ever tried to do that, we realize that's pretty much a failed strategy because soon enough in any potentially white space in your thought process, you are going to have that content bubble up again, potentially over and over and over again. And every time it appears, you're going to squash it down over and over again. So the mindfulness-based orientation toward the experience would be first really allow yourself to feel the emotions. So accept and allow. And then think of it as with there with you, but like you would have a friend or maybe a, a child in the room with you when you're trying to get something done. They're there with you. You hold them in this space, but they know and you know that right now your attention needs to go to what you're doing right now. You're not ignoring it, but you're also not engaging with it. You're not denying it, but you're also not trying to reframe it. You know, so anything that I would say that you would do typically push it away, think about it in a different way, try to work with the content, try to solve the problem. That would probably not be the approach to take from a mindfulness-based perspective, especially if there is a deadline. What are some of the ways we can work on developing our mindfulness practice that you think are most effective, whether you're speaking personally or you have general advice? How do we strengthen our mindfulness muscles so that when that moment comes, we're prepared? Exactly. And that's really the way I think about it. It's about training our minds to respond differently because it's definitely not our default. 
And that's really what I've been pursuing. I've been trying to figure that out for since I learned about mindfulness. How do we train people to do this? And not only train people to do this, because that's been a project around for literally millennia from the world's wisdom traditions, but how do we bring that wisdom and those practices to the modern day with time-pressured people who are not, you know, in a monastery alone, but in the real world, dealing with text messages and tons of demands and their social media feeds, et cetera. And for a lot of the groups that we work with, which are first responders, medical and nursing professionals, military service members, lapses of attention are consequential. They're, they're, they can be life and death. So this was essentially a very consequential project of how to do this. And what we basically were able to do is lean on the existing literature. And by the way, that was very little when I started. Like when I would, I remember telling my colleagues back in 2003 or four, this is before it was a buzzword or people knew what it was. There certainly weren't podcast conversations happening around mindfulness or not really podcasts around them either, but they thought it was career suicide. They're like, nobody cares about this topic and nobody ever will. And you're wasting your time. So there wasn't a lot out there, but what was there and what was starting to happen is that within medical clinics, people were starting to figure out, and the real pioneer in this was somebody named John Kabat-Zinn, who took essentially the Buddhist wisdom traditions, practices uh, that have a suite of meditation options, you know, suite of practices, and brought it to the medical clinic for people with chronic pain. So I could look to his program called Mindfulness-Based stress reduction and see what the main practices were. As soon as I started doing that, I realized, oh my goodness, these are all training attention. They're all giving the various three main brain systems of attention a workout. And what we've done is taken that sort of, that is sort of the whole base and trying to see if we could go from the eight hour, 24, sorry, eight week, 24 plus hour program that is mindfulness-based stress reduction 45 minutes a day of daily practice, all beneficial. Data suggests that it's working. Nobody in the time pressure context was willing to take that on. So our journey has been, let's take the, let's figure out which practices are necessary. Let's figure out how much they have to do every day and how can we scale this up so that no matter whether you're a firefighter or soldier or teacher, you might be able to have access to this. Purpose with a capital P. We're going to let the genius that behavioral social scientist and professor Arthur Brooks is take it away and preach the power of purpose. Happiness, which many people regard as a feeling, which it also isn't. That's like saying that their Thanksgiving dinner is the smell of the turkey. That's not what happiness is either. Your Thanksgiving dinner is made up of three things, protein, carbohydrates, and fat. And your happiness is made up of three things as well, enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose which you need in abundance and you need in balance. So, and satisfaction is basically just one macronutrient of happiness, but it's a very hard macronutrient to keep. Your body tells you, your brain tells you to, to chase it and chase it, to try to keep it and lies to you, saying that if you get that thing, then you'll have satisfaction forever. But we have to have more knowledge than that to understand that, in fact, there is joy from a job well done, but it doesn't last. Now, there's a, there's a physical process for this called homeostasis. It, 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 can, it conspires against our permanent satisfaction. Any human biological process uh, takes us always back to our equilibrium. So if you're on the treadmill and you're working out, you get good cardiovascular health and, you, and your pulse goes up to 160 beats per minute, 
15 minutes after you get off the treadmill, your pulse goes back to where it was or you die sooner or later. The same thing is true with your emotions. When you actually hit a goal, you get some joy. When you're afraid or sad, you feel bad. Those are basic, basic positive and negative emotions that happen to you through the limbic system of your brain, but you go back to normal so you can be ready for the next set of circumstances. Your basic emotions are evolved to keep you alive. Yet you need to go back to your equilibrium, but your brain always lies to you and says that they're permanent. So when somebody has a bad breakup, they think I'm going to feel horrible forever, but of course they don't. When they're afraid of something that's just episodic, they think, oh, it's going to be horrible forever. Run and then a day later, it's like, oh, I feel better. And when you're really happy about your goal met, your satisfaction, the joy that you get, you think you're going to keep it forever. And then it lasts a day or a week or 10 days. And then you're back running again. Early on in life, you have what's called fluid intelligence. Fluid intelligence is your natural ability to focus, to concentrate, and to solve problems. That's what you're doing if you're doing a startup. That's what you're doing if you're getting better as a lawyer. That's what you're doing if you're in graduate school and killing it and studying late into the night. That's your fluid intelligence. It gets higher in your 20s and it's getting higher in your 30s and it peaks usually in your late 30s or early 40s and then starts to decline. Now, what happens for real strivers is that nobody notices that they're having any decline at all because they're so good at what they do. But they notice a weird thing, which is they start to burn out. They start to feel bored with what they're doing and they don't like what they used to love very much. And it freaks them out because the worst thing is that I used to love my job as a lawyer and now I don't. And so they, they'll like start looking for hobbies or they go into some sort of like midlife crisis and that it, it throws their relationships into crisis. I mean, a lot of people will have extramarital affairs and it really comes from, they, they realize that they're not as good at what they or They're not as interested because they're not as good at what they were doing. That's the bad news. The good news is there's a better strength curve that comes in behind the first one that most people, many people don't even know exists. That's called your crystallized intelligence curve. That increases through your 40s and your 50s and 60s and stays high in your 70s and 80s and even your 90s. If, if you get your marbles that long, it is the best thing because it's your ultimate satisfaction that can come from success that actually lasts. And the best part of all is it's not your raw brains and hard work curve. It's your wisdom curve. It's like moving from Mark Zuckerberg to the Dalai Lama. It's your ability to teach, your ability to not answer any question, but to know which is the right question to ask. That's what you get good at. So people find like, I'm really good at explaining stuff. Why is that? It's because you have more crystallized intelligence than you used to have. Or lawyers who are really happy in their law firms, they were hot litigators early on. They become managing partners later where they're, they're it's like they, I used to be a ninja. Now I counsel a team of ninjas is kind of how they think about it. They will literally become teachers in any walk of life. They'll be counseling people. They'll be mentoring people. I know some people who literally go into teaching professions in the second part because they're naturally so good at it. And, and I'm telling you, it's a weird thing. I look back as a professor, I look back at the papers I was writing, the academic papers I was writing in my early thirties, and I can't even read them. They're so technical. They're so like. I was doing genetic algorithms, which is an early form of artificial intelligence as a mathematical model to, to, to predict the behavior of governmental policy. I mean, it's just, it was so long here and I can't believe it. And, and now I can't read it, but what do I do? I, I actually harvest the interesting ideas of researchers all over the world. I combine them to write a column that has four or 500,000 readers a week. I become a teacher of ideas, a translator of ideas to a much, much bigger audience. I teach these ideas at the Harvard Business School to my students. They're not coming in as PhD students and as specialists in behavioral social science. 
they, they want the top line and how they can use it. And I can do that now because I have much higher crystallized intelligence. So the key is know that your skills are going to change, anticipate what kind of change and walk from one curve to another so that later you don't have to jump too far when you've gone down on the wrong curve and you're still struggling against your decline. That's all folks. Thank you for listening to our special 400th episode. Wow, what a journey it's been since we first launched this show on June 12, 2017. Feels like yesterday, but at the same time, feels like forever. Thank you all so much for listening. I am extraordinarily grateful for each and every one of you. Be well. Be well.